Good morning. Oh, thanks, Denny. I need a little music. <laughs> Good morning. Oh, thanks. Welcome to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with a worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. Thanks for listening to this Bible lesson. Well, you may be wondering some things about Barah Ministries. Number one, who is the God we worship? Number two, what is our source of truth? And number three, who is our enemy? Well, we study the Bible together for a simple reason. John chapter 17, verse 3, which is the real Lord's Prayer. In it, the Lord tells us exactly what this is about. This is the resurrection life, eternal life. That all may know you, God the Father, the only true God. And that all may know Jesus, the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, whom you, Father, have sent. So we get together to learn about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So who is this God that we worship? We worship a triune Godhead. There's one God who expresses himself to mankind as three separate, distinct, co-equal, co-infinite, and co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is the author of the Godhead's plan for all creatures. And he hears billions and billions of prayers every day. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, the Lord says, When you pray, go into your inner room, which is an, a sacred sanctuary of your own choosing. Close your door, if the sanctuary has a door, and pray to your God and Father who hears you in the secret place. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. God the Father is the rewarder of those who do good, of those who seek no praise for themselves, but credit him with all success. God the Son volunteered to execute God the Father's plan. He came to earth and did a job he volunteered for, for so that all of us could be offered the resurrection life, according to 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come. And he has given us understanding so that we may know God the Father, who is true. And we are in union with him who is true, in union with God the Father's Son, Jesus the Christ, the Jewish Messiah. He is the true God, and he is the resurrection life, eternal life. There is one and only one way to get to heaven. You invest your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, asking him to save you, 
And by believing in him, you instantly have the resurrection life, eternal life in his name. We worship God the Holy Spirit. He is known as a paraclete, a helper, who brings his divine power to assist others in times of trouble. John chapter 14, verse 26. But the helper, the the parakletos is the Greek word. The helper, God the Holy Spirit, whom God the Father will send in my name, the name of Jesus, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I, the Lord Jesus Christ, said to you. God the Holy Spirit is the one who keeps on mentoring us, who keeps on teaching us, a guide who is the rudder of the Christian life. Well, what is our source of truth? As Christians, we can develop a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the entire Godhead through the study of the Word of God. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 says this, Every word of God is tested. What that means is every word of God is proven to be true. So when we study the Bible, it is not just a book. I am so sick of hearing people tell me that the Bible is just a book and it has a lot of contradictions and it was written by men and all the things that they say to dismiss the fact that this is the most important written work in divine history. When we study the Bible, we learn God's viewpoint and not man's viewpoint. We reject those teachers with teachings that are proposing as doctrines the precepts of men. We care about God's viewpoint as being the perfect guide for our decisions and our lives. So when we teach here, what we're teaching is God's viewpoint, and we have no need or no ability to spin it to make it something that it isn't. Well, who is our enemy? He's the sponsor of spin. God, of course, has an enemy, Satan, whom God made the ruler of this world for a finite period. He is the enemy of believers in Christ as well. He is the tempter. Like the bad kid at school who's always inviting others to the road of trouble. And some adopt his lifestyle of trouble as a practice, according to John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. It says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. And that's sin as a practice, not sins. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Believers in Christ sin, but not as a practice. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 continues, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And he succeeded. Those of us who follow the Lord are free from sin as a practice, and hold on to the righteous, righteousness gifted to us by the Lord. And as a result, we reject Satan's temptations and look at them as they are, false promises that always lead to destruction. Well, today's Bible lesson, what is God's message to hypocrites? What is God's message to hypocrites? We know what a hypocrite is because we all keep on being <laughs> hypocrites. Uh, A hypocrite is an actor who talks from behind a mask. And we have times when we know the truth deep inside, but on the outside we cover the truth with lies and half-truths designed to make us look good, even to make ourselves look better than others. And as hypocrites, we become actors who talk from behind a mask. Well, Romans chapter 2 is God's message to unbeliever hypocrites. 
In today's lesson, we'll learn that whether you're an immoral sinner or a moral sinner, you will be judged in fairness and impartiality by a righteous God. And no matter how highly you think of yourselves, you know better than anyone else. Well, let's hear some music. On a righteous day in the future, the Lord will do what none of us want anyone to do to us. He will judge. And knowing this, what's so special about the Lord? What's so different about him? It's his love, his unconditional love. And all we need is his love. The Beatles were right. And he gives it to us in great abundance. Here's Mike McClure to sing about the man that was hung as a common criminal to pay for our sins with his blood, the God-man, Jesus, who was crucified between two thieves. Two, three. 
Let us pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, thank you for keeping us aware of who we are, that no matter what we think of ourselves, your righteous judgment is completely true. When we delude ourselves into thinking we're more special than others, thank you for bringing us back into the reality of how depraved we really are. And thank you for being willing to let us sin so that we see again and again how much we want to rebel against you and your thoughts and against your word. And thank you for always welcoming us back, always forgiving us, always loving us unconditionally, always treating us in grace. Let God the Holy Spirit make the message of this lesson penetrate to the depths of our souls and to the depths of our hearts and let it inspire compassion for others rather than promoting attitudes of self-righteous superiority toward others. And we ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Today's Bible lesson, what is God's message to hypocrites? What is God's message to hypocrites? Well, the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Christian churches at first century Rome deals with those who do not believe the immoral sins of Romans chapter 1 refer to them. Now, the most important book for a Christian to study in the New Testament is the book of Romans because it is the foundational book of biblical Christianity. And if you ever ask your Christian friends if they've ever studied Romans, you'll be shocked to find that most of them (laughs) couldn't even find the, the book of Romans if they started thumbing through their Bibles. But this is the book that sets the foundation for everything that is Christianity. Now, uh, the second chapter of Romans spotlights two sets of self-appointed judges of others. First, there are those judges who consider themselves better than the immoral sinners that were pointed out in Romans chapter 1, and for many reasons. And we see these same things today. There are a lot of people who think they're better than you are because of race. There are a lot of people who think they're better than you are because of nationality. There are a lot of people who think they're better than you are because of personal affluence. There are a lot of people who think they're better than you are because of education. There are a lot of people who think they're better than you are because of culture. And second, there are those judges who consider themselves better because they choose to hide in a religion. In the Apostle Paul's day, this was the Jews. I was on a vacation uh, late last year, and I was with a couple that were Lutheran. And you know, one of, one of my thoughts is that if Martin Luther came back today from the dead and saw Lutheranism, he would kill himself again. He didn't kill himself the first time, but he would kill himself if he saw what Lutheranism was and how his name had been attached to it. And so that couple and I had a series of conversations, but the whole basis of the conversation was, you don't know what you're talking about. We do. We're, we're so progressive. We have female pastors and we have gay pastors and we're so wonderful. Okay, well then all you have to do is take them to the Bible and you don't see support for those kinds of things and they don't want to hear anything about it. So it's easy to hide in a religion 
And as a matter of fact, I have a little bit of experience with that. The legalistic, self-righteous sinners consider themselves to be respectable. In God's eyes, there's no distinction between sinners, whether the sinners are moral sinners or immoral sinners. Each sinner will be treated the same with the same fairness by God. Now remember what a sinner is. A sinner is an unbeliever. And a lot of times you'll hear Christians refer to themselves as sinners. We are not sinners. We are saints. Virtually every greeting of every letter in the New Testament talks about us as saints. Paul doesn't say this letter to the Romans is to the Roman sinners. He says it's to the saints at Rome. So we are saints. Now, in Romans chapter 2, it's an indictment against moralistic people. Romans chapter 1 was an indictment against immoral people. You know I like using the word lascivious, but I hate sending you scurrying to your dictionary. <laughs> but uh, this, this particular chapter is against moral sinners, especially those who think that being religious makes them special. At a family wedding, one of my cousins was poking fun because I'm divorced twice while being a pastor. A penetrating question, uh, like a cold glass of water in her face, I asked, aren't you divorced twice? That's the, 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 the approach of those who are moralistic and legalistic. They have their finger pointing at everybody else's sins, but they never look at their own. So all, all those who judge others conveniently forget their own sins, and when their sins come up, they forget even faster. Well, let's take a look and have a listen to the first passage in Romans chapter 2. The, the chapter is divided into two passages. We'll study the first one today, and we'll study the next one in the next lesson. As God sends his message to the hypocrites. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore... You have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that way you judge another, you simultaneously condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same sins. See, God says none of us are basically good people. That's another expression that you'll hear from people all the time, all over the world. I've taught in 30 countries, and you hear this same exact set of words over and over again as if everybody went to a class and learned. Anytime somebody challenges you, just say, I am basically a good person. It's the same expression, which tells you the power of deception. So God says none of us are basically good people, regardless of what we think of ourselves. Moral sinners sin, even though they may do it a different way. Romans chapter 2, verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such sins. Why? Because God's judgments are always righteous. Romans chapter 2, verse 3. But do you suppose this, old man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such sins, and that's immoral sins, and then you do the same sins yourself, in the background, of course, out of sight, Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Of course they think they will escape judgment, proposing that God is a hypocrite as well, proposing that God is sentimental, proposing that God will give them a special break or a special pass because they're so good. Well, he is not sentimental that way. He will not give them a pass because he is fair in every circumstance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing, and not knowing means actually forgetting, that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? What is repentance? A change of mind about having a relationship with Christ. God is gracious with sinners. And these first three chapters of Romans are all about sinners. It is an indictment of the entire human race, and all of us begin as sinners in God's eyes. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, and in the day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 2.6 The God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Romans, now, what are the two groups that God will be judging? Here's the first group, Romans chapter 2, verse 7. Those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. That's believers in Christ. Here's the second group, Romans chapter 2, verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and indignation. Those are unbelievers. So those are the two groups that will be judged. Romans chapter 2, verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jews first chronologically, and also of the Greeks, and that's Gentiles, that's us. Romans 2.10 But glory and honor and peace will come to everyone who does good, to the Jew first chronologically, and also to the Greeks, that's us Gentiles. Why? Romans 2.11 Because there's no partiality with God. Amen? Romans 2.12 For all who have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Romans 2.13 For it is not the hearers of the law who are justified before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Does that mean you can work your way to heaven? Don't be silly. Absolutely not. Romans 2.14 For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law. These Gentiles, not having the law, are a law unto themselves. Romans 2.15 In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bears witness, and their thoughts alternatively accuse them or defend them. Romans 2.16 I think I have this miss labeled, do I? Or was I too quick? I wanted to know. That they show. There we go. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bears witness and their thoughts alternatively accuse them or defend them. Romans 2.16. On the day when according to my gospel 
God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. God's scathing indictment of the entire Roman world continues. In Romans chapter 1, an indictment of the immoral sinner. In Romans chapter 2, an indictment of the moral sinner. One is not better than the other. Legalistic, self-righteous unbelievers are sinners too, and they need a savior. Legalistic self-righteousness is mean-spirited. Legalistic self-righteousness is a delusional death chamber. And I can remember when I thought I had all of the keys of Christianity. And I remember being absolutely humbled by a guy in Mexico who was making $7 an hour carrying bricks up seven flights of stairs every day. And he taught me something about the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. See, if the, if, if the Holy Spirit isn't good enough to take a person who has zero intelligence and make him the same as somebody who has 100% intelligence, then the Holy Spirit isn't doing his job. But the Holy Spirit always does his job. The Holy Spirit has never failed at his job. So it's not intelligence we need to be Christians. It's faith that we need to be Christians. And it's been gifted to us by God. And we can take that gift and express it. And all we have to do to get to heaven is express that gift by placing our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. And then we're saved. And then a whole series of things happens after that that would boggle the imagination. We're placed into union with Christ through the baptism of God, the Holy Spirit. We're, we have God's righteousness imputed to us. And we are justified. We're legally declared righteous, and we can never lose it. We have a salvation that can't be stripped from us. You, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time to tell you. We're saints, not sinners. I don't have enough time to tell you all the things that happen at that magic moment that takes about 60 seconds to do. So, people who are legalistic want to take that and pervert it into something that it's not. They want to look and act superior to other people. We aren't superior. We aren't superior. And all we have to do is go look in the mirror and we'll see that we're not superior. So people who think that they're better than others wake up in the lake of fire. And they can't even imagine how they got there <laughs> since they're so good. But they found out that they're not the judge of what is good. God is. And what is good to God is his own righteousness that he gifts to believers in Christ at the moment of salvation. And that is our admission ticket to heaven. God has a holy standard, absolute righteousness. Nice people have the same spiritual problem as those who are flagrantly sinning. Well, what is God's message to moral sinners? In Matthew chapter 7, Verses 1 to 5, he says this, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. This creates a tremendous dilemma for Christians. What do, you, what do you mean, do not judge? It's not talking about discernment. 
is talking about being critical of others. Matthew 7, 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it'll be measured back to you. Matthew 7, 3. Why do you, who practice legalistic self-righteousness, look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Matthew 7, 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? Matthew 7, 5. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. One of my friends says it this way, don't point fingers, Pastor Rory, because when you point a finger at somebody else, there are three fingers pointing back at you. Well, what is judging? The kind of judging the Lord is speaking of in this passage is self-righteousness, a hypocritical condemnation of somebody, accusing them of things that you do as well. Discernment, on the other hand, spiritual wisdom is not judging. You have to go, when when you pick a pastor, you have to pick a pastor that you think is teaching the truth from God's perspective. And you have to do what the Bereans did. They examined that pastor. Every single message, every word of every message, so that they can see if what that pastor is teaching is so. And that's why I give you notes. I give you the written notes to my lessons so that you can know, you can take them home, you can inspect, and you can say, okay, this lesson said this, What does the Bible have to say about it? Because that's what you ought to be checking. And if you can't find what a pastor is teaching in the Bible, then you ought to be suspicious about it. Amen? And I don't mean taking, I don't mean confirmation bias. Because a lot of pastors teach with confirmation bias. They make something up and then they bring verses taken out of context to justify what they think. I don't mean that. I mean, anytime you have a verse, the first thing you ought to do is the first thing that I do when I'm going to use a verse. I back it out. I look at the context. I look at the passage, and I see if what I'm thinking that's saying is what this passage is saying. And if it isn't, I'm not going to teach it. Because I'm going to teach what the passage says. I'm not going to teach what Rory wants to teach so that you can have my opinion in your soul. Because as I've told you many times, my opinion in $3.40 will get you a cup of Starbucks coffee. Amen? My opinion doesn't matter. God's opinion matters. So believers in Christ would do well to heed the advice of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, which says this, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. What does that mean? It means look in the mirror. Examine yourselves. Don't be anxious to point at what other people are or aren't doing. Look at yourselves and see what you are or aren't doing. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, believers in Christ, that Jesus Christ is indwelling you? As a matter of fact, the whole Trinity is indwelling you because you're a church-age believer, unless indeed you fail the test. Check yourself. Legalistically self-righteous unbelievers would do well to make self-examination a practice as well, and they frankly don't. 
Self-examination, not self-lenience, is a key to growth. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3 says this, If anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So how are you deceiving yourself about you? Well, when we return from the break, we'll take the offering, and then we'll begin our verse-by-verse examination, an in-depth look at that first passage of Romans chapter 2. Take a five-minute break. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life I've been told I belong at the end of the line. Will all the other not quite? Will all the never get it right? But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time. Cause I'm just a nobody. I'm trying to tell everybody. All about somebody who saved my soul. Ever since you rescued me, you gave my heart a song to sing. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. When Moses had stage fright, and David brought a rock to a sword fight. You picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen And you changed the world Well, the moral of the story is Everybody's got a purpose So when I hear that devil start talking to me Saying, who do you think you are? I say, I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul
Welcome back. Today's Bible lesson, what is God's message to hypocrites? What is God's message to hypocrites? Well, God the Father loves all of his creatures unconditionally. And he loves us so much that he gave his son to save us. God the Father is not conflicted about giving. Are you? 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 say this. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the unconditional love of God abide in that person? 1 John 3.18 Little children, and that's John's reference to believers in Christ. Let us not love unconditionally with word or with tongue. In other words, love is not talk. But let us love unconditionally with deeds and in truth. Let this be a time in your life when you realize what God the Father can do with what you give. Realize how important giving is as it makes life an amazing experience for those in need. I have been interacting with a missionary out of uh, Nigeria and uh, as as I keep talking to him more and more, he's educating me about what it's like in Nigeria and it's really eye opening because You know, we have a lifestyle here, and then this guy has a lifestyle there, and some of the things that he has to deal with are just mind-boggling. I'll I'll just give you a quick one. Uh, In his culture, they consider a woman who has twins to be an abomination. And what they usually do is take the, the twins out to a forest and kill them. I mean, can you even imagine that? And then the woman becomes available for sacrifice. So, but he's listening to our lessons now and being informed by them. And it's really gratifying to see. And as I talk to him, I'm always checking him and testing him to see if what I'm talking to him about is really getting through. And it's debunking a lot of the things that he's thought in the past, but everything is always taken to the Bible, taken to the Bible, taken to the Bible. And I saw his Bible, by the way, and it, didn't, it wasn't ruffled up, so I got on his case about that a little bit. He needs to ruffle that thing up a little more. But anyway, your giving is important because we can get messages to people in Nigeria, and he's got a congregation of 55 people, and we can get messages to him that he can get to those people so that they can be saved and so they can grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So be generous with the gifts your God has given you, time gifts, talent gifts, and treasure gifts. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with one of his always inspiring offering messages. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be a deacon at Barah Ministries. And I'm blessed because at Barah we know that Christ does not, the, the Lord does not give us a spirit of timidity. He doesn't make us scared. Imagine if we came to this life and he said, here's your manual. You're supposed to be shy, nervous, and unsure of yourself. 
we would get nothing done. We would be scared at the first chance of an offering or at the first chance to give somebody the gospel. You know, so I think if you have any doubts or if you have any fear in your mind, that's not from Christ. That's not from God. And we know that. We know that because of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God the Father has given us, has not given us a, a spirit of timidity. He has given us a spirit of divine power and unconditional love and sound judgment. Three things, three powerful things when you think about it. That power, divine power of God, the same power that rose Christ in resurrection. If he wanted us to be timid, we would, give this, we would have the spirit of a mouse. We would run away at the first sign of trouble to scurry, to hide, and we would truly get nothing done. We wouldn't be Christians. And so that same power, if he wanted us to be that way, we would be that way. But he doesn't. He wants us, we see it here. He doesn't give us that timid spirit. And so when we have the chance to give an offering or give um, the gospel, we should do it because we have that power. And then the unconditional love, that's the same love that Christ forgave while he was on the cross. He still loved them. That's amazing. So it's a tough love. It's a love that can get through things. It's a love that no matter what people do, if they've wronged you in the worst way, you can still love them. We have that love. And so if you, if you have the doubt and love, then that's not from God. And so in sound judgment, we have the discipline. We know that, you know, I believe, I believe we know from, from birth right and wrong. Because you can see a kid, you come into their room, and they look at you like, oh, I know I was doing something wrong, but you didn't tell them they were doing something wrong. And so I think in the same way as Christians, whether mature or beginning believers, you know what Christ wants of your life. He wants you to seek him first, pick up your cross, you know, and give it the offering and, and use your spiritual gifts. There's no doubt there. If you doubt, that's from you. That's not from God. We know what we need to do. And it's just like at the offering, it's an amazing use of all three of these things. Your divine power, your unconditional love for others, and sound judgment. You know this is what God would want you to do. Give in support of other Christians. Give so that Christians can have the gospel all around the world. Little kids in Africa, little kids in China, all the places that people worry about. That message is getting there. So thank you for giving it the offering and supporting our pastor and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome back. Today's Bible lesson, what is God's message to hypocrites? What is God's message to hypocrites? So let's see what we can learn from the first passage of Romans chapter 2 by examining it verse by verse. Let's begin at Romans chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore, you who practice legalistic self-righteousness and religion have no defense, no escape from judgment, 
every one of you who passes judgment on others. For in those things for which you judge others, like those practicing immoral sinning, you condemn yourself with moral sinning. For you who judge, and that's those who practice immoral sin, or for you who judge those who practice immoral sinning, practice the same things, immoral sinning practiced in the closet and not a sight, immoral things which are just as bad and perhaps worse. Romans chapter 2 verse 2, and we know that the judgment of God always is righteous because he tells the truth. A judgment falling not only on those who practice immoral sinning, but also upon those who practice moral sinning, which is legalistic self-righteousness and religion. Well, legalists choose to be intentionally blind to their own faults. For example, the Jews of this day thought they were better than the Gentiles, who they called the Goyim, and that is a term that's used today. Still, Goy, I have a friend that I've evangelized, who's Jewish, that I, I have a ton of Jewish friends, as a matter of fact, and I've evangelized to all of them, but I have one in particular, and I have evangelized to her over and over and over again. Well, we have a mutual friend, and she would always say to the mutual friend, could, could you just tell Rory to stop talking to me about Jesus Christ? I'm Jewish. Well, she is. She's Jewish. She's a racial Jew. But she's not a spiritual Jew. Because you can be Jewish and Christian. And that's what Abraham was. He was a spiritual Jew. And she doesn't get that. And it's going to be a shame in the lake of fire for her to be playing over and over and over again in her conscience all the times that she rejected a friend who was trying to lead her to Christ, who is the Jewish Messiah. And that's why I, I put in the lessons the idea that the Christ is an expression. That's not Jesus Christ's last name. The Christ is a reference to the Jewish Messiah. And there were about 109 predictions of what you'd see when the Christ appeared. They all came true, and those who were legalistically self-righteous chose to ignore them. The Pharisees knew who Jesus Christ was. They just didn't like it. So, even today, my friends call me a goy. And, okay, but I don't know. You might have missed what happened at the cross because the Gentiles are just as important as the Jews, and the cross changed everything, and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And by the way, you want to talk about an insult. That was really insulting to a Jewish person, and Paul was the Jew of Jews. It was really insulting for him to be directed to the Gentiles. But that's God's sense of humor. So while legalists are phony judges, an omnipresent God who is everywhere at the same time, an omniscient God who knows everything knowable, including our motives, will judge all people fairly, based solely on the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, to coin a judicial expression. To God, 
sin is sin. And whether it's immoral sin or moral sin, it's sin. And a sinner is a sinner. Romans chapter 2, verse 3. But do you suppose this, O men and women who practice legalistic self-righteousness in religion, that when you pass judgment on those who practice immoral sinning, and you do the same things yourself, perhaps worse, your own brand of immoral sinning, that you'll escape the judgment of God? And we saw this a couple of lessons ago with the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery in John chapter 8. Really funny that the Jewish law said that if a woman and a man were caught in the act of adultery, they were stoned to death. Yet the Pharisees brought the woman, but not the man, and then tried to get Jesus Christ. They tried to trick Jesus into saying something stupid. Where was the man? The man was probably a Pharisee. And they didn't, who, because how do you catch somebody in the act of adultery? How do you do that? I mean, that's pretty hard because people who are committing adultery aren't all that stupid. They know that they have to go hide somewhere. Right? So, how do you catch somebody in the act? That was a setup. And both the man and the woman should have been stoned to death if anybody was going to be stoned to death. And that's not what happened. And so that's what always happens, that you have people who are moralistic, who are beautiful on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. They're doing stuff in the background and they're hiding it and, you know, selling us on this facade. The Lord Jesus Christ is sin-free and he is qualified to judge and he's the only one who's qualified to judge. A sinful man is not qualified to judge. Once a person sins once, he is never qualified to judge again. But people who are moralistic always assume the prerogative of God and judge. Remember what the Lord said to the legalistic and hypocritical Pharisees about the woman caught in the very act of adultery in John chapter 8, verse 7? He said, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at you. And of course, there are no stones. There were no stones thrown. Now, the Roman Catholics who, who think that Mary was sinless, the Virgin Mary, ever virgin, was sinless and lived a sinless life, have a joke about this. They, that Jesus said, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone. And then a stone comes through and hits the woman in the head. And Jesus says, Mother! Well, no. No, Mary was not sinless. She did not live a sinless life. She was not bodily assumed into heaven, as is the myth in the Roman Catholic Church. Anyway, only Jesus was qualified to throw a stone, and he didn't. All right, let's pick it up at Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you who practice legalistic self-righteousness and religion, think lightly of the riches of God the Father's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing, meaning ignoring the fact, that the kindness of God the Father is what leads people to repentance. And what is repentance? It's a change of mind about having a relationship with Christ. I have a battle going on with a couple of pastors right now 
and they're telling me that believers in Christ are supposed to repent of their sins, and I'm asking them to cut me a video to show me what I would be doing if I was repenting of my sins, because there's no biblical backup for that whole thought. Anyway, those who appear to be nice aren't always nice. People who practice legalistic self-righteousness really don't think they need anything from God. But they do. They are unrighteous sinners, and they need God's righteousness as their admission ticket to heaven. They are sinners. They need a Savior, because sinners need a Savior. Those who are spiritually dead need spiritual life, as the Lord told Nicodemus in Romans chapter 3, or in John chapter 3, verse 3. Because the Lord's judgments are always right and always true, he has the right to strike down anyone the moment they sin. Do you hear that? I mean, when, when Satan sinned for the first time, he could have just shut the program down. And that's not what he did. What he did is he offered reconciliation because Satan wasn't the only angel to fall. Satan was so powerful, he convinced all of the angels to rebel. Not one-third. All of the angels rebelled. And God gave a reconciliation offer, and two-thirds of the angels took it, and one-third did not. So, the Lord is not somebody who's going to strike you down every time you commit a sin. He's going to let you learn from sin if you're open to learning from sin. He's patient. He is long-suffering because when you sin, he suffers, giving all creatures chance after chance after chance to admit to themselves and to the Lord that they are sinners and need a Savior. And he withholds his wrath until the day of judgment. One of the things that uh, I learned this week and I don't know why I didn't learn it earlier in my pastoral career, which has spanned 25 years, is that the lake of fire was not created for human beings. It was never intended for human beings. The lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. And there will be human beings in the lake of fire, and they are the ones who reject a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your obstinate and unrepentant heart, you unbelievers who practice legalistic self-righteousness and religion are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of the revelation of God the Father's wrath and in the day of the righteous judgment of God the Father. Those who practice legalistic self-righteousness are, as a lifestyle are filling a Gatorade cooler of treasure that will be dumped on their heads. And you've probably seen that if you've ever watched a sporting event, that at the end of the sporting event, this w would be something that if I was a, a professional coach, I would tell my players, I swear this to you, I will kill you if you pour Gatorade on me because I don't like cold stuff. Amen? <laughs> so do not pour cold Gatorade down my back. I will kill you and go to jail. So... <laughs> Unbelievers are storing up a Gatorade cooler of wrath, and at a point, it's going to be dumped on their head, but not as a celebration. Because you see, 
The reason Jesus Christ went to the cross was to take on the wrath of God the Father for the entire human race and for the entire angelic race. He didn't want you to have to be at the wrong end of the wrath of God. Now, people who believe in Christ say, thank you very much. I do not want to be at the wrong end of the wrath of God. And for them, there is no more condemnation. But unbelievers are saying, yeah, thanks, Jesus. I'll do it myself. I'll take care of it myself. Big mistake. So the treasure that they're collecting in the Gatorade cooler, the wrath of God will be poured on them at the great white throne judgment. And they will experience God the Father's wrath every moment for all eternity. Annihilation in the lake of fire is not destruction of the, of the soul. It is torture of the soul every day for all eternity. So unbelievers are accumulating count after count after count of guilt against themselves. Romans chapter 2 verse 6. Now, by the way, if that doesn't hit you in the gut a little bit, that needs to hit you in the gut a little bit. Because you have people who are in your family who are unbelievers, who are accumulating wrath in the Gatorade cooler. And a lot of times, because we don't want conflict, we don't say anything to them. As for me, when I knew that my kids were believers in Christ, I evangelized to them every day because I would never want them to experience the wrath of God. So even though I knew they were believers, I didn't ever take it for granted. And we ought to have the same attitude toward those people in our periphery who we have any doubt about that may be unbelievers because there is nothing worse than being at the wrong end of the wrath of God. Romans 2.6 for God the Father will compensate each person according to his deeds, whether they are righteous, whether they are a righteous work or an unrighteous work. A righteous work is believing in Christ. An unrighteous work involves rejecting a relationship with Christ. Romans chapter 2, verse 7. And God the Father will compensate believers in Christ who by perseverance keep on doing good, and keep on seeking for glory and honor and immortality. God the Father will compensate them with the resurrection life, eternal life. Romans 2.8, But to unbelievers who are unpersuadable and do not obey the truth, but keep on obeying unrighteousness with evil deeds, both moral and immoral deeds, God the Father will compensate them with his wrath and indignation. And one of the things you ought to do, you know, as we look at these verses, you can, you, if you compare them to the New American Standard version of the Bible, you'll see that the, the New American Standard is giving you a translation, and these verses are telling you what those translations are saying. And so it's a good idea during the week for you to compare those two things. So... What is wrath? Simply stated, wrath is God's mindset toward unbelievers. 
Now, if when we were God the Father's enemy, and at a time when he could have just struck us with a lightning bolt, turned off the breathing apparatus in us, but he didn't. He sent his son to take abuse that no human being has ever taken before. And sent his son to a cross to take the wrath in our place. Wouldn't it kind of make sense that God the Father wouldn't be all that happy with it if you rejected his son? He's not happy with it. That's what wrath is. It's God's mindset toward unbelievers who reject his son. Romans chapter 2, verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of all mankind who does evil. And that's a reference to unbelievers. Men and women of the Jews first, chronologically, and also of the Greeks, the Gentiles. In other words, tribulation and distress is reserved for the whole human race, and the only way out is through believing in Jesus Christ. Romans 2.10 But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, and believers in Christ, the regenerate ones who do good, are the ones who do good, and that good is believing in Jesus Christ. To the Jew first, chronologically, who are believers in Christ, there's a whole group of Jews who are called Messianic Jews, and they are rejected on a level that you wouldn't even believe by most Jewish people. But they know who Yeshua is. They know that the Messiah has come. They're not going to wait until the second coming to figure it out that the Messiah has come. They know right now. And also to the Greek. And those are Gentiles who are believers in Christ. Romans 2.11 For there is no partiality in the presence of God. Everybody Everybody who has ever come to this earth is going to stand before Jesus Christ one day. You're going to stand before him at one of two places. You're going to stand before him as a believer in Christ at the judgment seat of Christ to be compensated for your life on the earth and you're going to, or you're going to stand in front of him at the great white throne judgment because you rejected a relationship with Jesus Christ. But everybody's going to meet him. And you've heard it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether in the heavens or on the earth or under the earth, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus Christ is God. And that's why that sign is over my head to remind people, Jesus Christ is God. He is the central figure in divine history. And your attitude toward him is your attitude toward you and your eternity. There is no partiality in the presence of God. We live in a world filled with hierarchy. The upper class, the middle class, the lower class. The majority and the minorities. And I've told you this a lot of times. I started out as colored. Then I became a Negro. Then I became black. Then I became a minority. Then I became an at-risk youth. Then I became a person of color. I don't know what I am today. Amen? I don't know what in the hell I am. I'm so confused. But all I want to be is a human being. But that's the, the class system. It's always designed to put somebody down. You know, you take 
Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Colombians, Argentinians, none of whom like each other, and lump them into one category, Hispanics. Now, for marketing, I, I get that. Actually, for marketing, I don't get that. But that's the world we live in. There's the white and the black. There's the rich and the poor. There's the smart and the dumb. There's the strong and the weak. And then we see people like Jeff Bezos, the, the founder of Amazon, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Oprah Winfrey, Steve Ballmer, who owns the uh, Los Angeles Clippers, who are never going to win an NBA championship. There's, <laughs> There's Mark Zuckerberg, who founded Facebook, the uber-rich. And the older I get, the sicker I get at my stomach when I think about these guys who are brilliant in business and who are brilliant at making money, but who have no spiritual life. And if you just investigate a couple layers deep, I told you about Warren Buffett. Buffett, he's agnostic. He doesn't think that the uh, mysteries of God can be known, yet he knows everything about money and how to make it. And Bill Gates, who said going to church is a complete waste of time. Oprah Winfrey, who was a Christian as a kid, so she's still a Christian, but has said, uh, who, who got herself involved with all these different people and then finally came out and said, and you can check this out on YouTube if you'd like, but came out and said, there can't just be one, Jesus Christ. It's got to be other things. They're part of, part of the hierarchy here. They got a lot of money. But are they exempt from God's judgment? Are they going to be any different than me when we're standing before Jesus Christ? Maybe. Maybe they won't be at the judgment seat of Christ. Maybe they'll be at the, the great white throne judgment. But I know that I have plus R stenciled to my forehead. I have righteousness that was given, gifted to me by God. And I know which one of those I'm going to be at. I'm going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. And all of you who are believers in Christ, are going to be at that judgment. Will they stand proud before the Lord as if they deserve some special treatment like the treatment they get here on earth? Well, they won't because God does not see as man sees. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says this, The Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at Eliab's appearance nor the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. With the Lord, there is no distinction between sinners. A sinner, who is an unbeliever, is a sinner, and a sin is a sin. In the Roman Catholic Church, there were moral sins and venial sins. There were sins that could send you to hell, and there were sins that not, were not that bad. That's not the way God sees it. And we know that God works in ones. There's only one sin that matters, and that's any sin. And there is one way to salvation, and that's the Christ, through believing in the Jewish Messiah. And there's one way to damnation, eternal residence in the lake of fire after death, and that's the rejection 
of a relationship with Christ, which he offers to whosoever. Can God's program be any easier than that? Romans 2.12, for all who have sinned without the Mosaic law, that's a reference to Gentiles who were not under the Mosaic law, including Abraham, who was a Gentile before he was a Jew. For all who have sinned without the Mosaic law, without the Mosaic law, they will also perish, being evaluated by their rejection of a relationship with Christ. And all who have sinned under the Mosaic law will be judged by the Mosaic law. Romans 2.13, for it is not those instructed in the knowledge of the Mosaic Law who are justified before God the Father, not those who cling to academics and academic knowledge. It's the doers of the Mosaic Law who will be justified before God the Father. In other words, this, it's not enough to know there is a God. I was talking to a young lady this week, and she said, I know there's a higher power. I know there's something bigger than me. And I asked her a really simple question. Do you know his name? And she didn't. And I said, do you want to know his name? She said, yeah, I'd actually be interested in that. We had a nice conversation about Jesus Christ. It's not enough to know there is a God. Your faith must be invested in him by choosing to be saved. Doing in this passage is not works. You can't be saved by works. No one is saved because of works. Doing is obedience to God's commands. Why are we believers in Christ righteous? Because God made us righteous as a free gift, not because of anything we have done. And as human beings, we just can't resist the temptation to want to help God with everything. And quite frankly, an omnipotent God who has all the power doesn't need our help with anything. What he wants is us to understand what he's willing to do for us, what he's willing to pour into us with divine power, because human power will never compare in any way to divine power. Romans 2.14. For when Gentiles, who don't have the Mosaic Law, do habitually by nature the things of the Mosaic Law. Those Gentiles, not having the Mosaic Law, are a law unto themselves. Romans 2.15. In that, the Gentiles show the work of the Mosaic Law written in their hearts. Their conscience, that part of them that knows right from wrong, and Deacon Denny said from, from birth, it usually is about age two, by the time kids know the difference between right and wrong, but they clearly do. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively, alternately accusing them or else defending them. What does that mean? Red light. We may never have taken a driving course that had a booklet describing the law of traffic light. I'm from Illinois, so we had a booklet. It's called Rules of the Road, and you had to read it, and you had to be tested on it every year. Not so in Arizona. You get your license for life, so you can kill as you will running lights in Arizona. But we may never have taken a driving course that had a booklet describing the law of traffic lights, but through mere observation of what others are doing, we know that red is stop and green is go. That's what's being said here. 
that even though the Gentiles didn't have the law, they knew what was right and what was wrong. They knew what was red and they knew what was green. And because of that, they became a law unto themselves. They weren't circumcised, but they learned. They knew that there was a God, and they knew that they could express their faith in him. Romans 2.16. And there will be a day when, according to my gospel, that's Paul talking, God the Father will judge the hidden things of men through the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. If the Lord shows you all you have done, yet counts none of it against you, is he being cruel or unfair? A terrible day is coming when we will be introduced to who we really have been, a version of us, quite different from the delusional paragon we have made, of our, our, made ourselves out to be in our own minds. A, a paragon is somebody who is just excellent. And we always make ourselves out to be just excellent. And we lock that into our minds. But some of the tears that the Lord is going to have to wipe away when we get to heaven are the tears that are going to come right after we see the movie of who we really were after the moment of salvation and who we were before the moment of salvation. And we're going to feel like such a disappointment to the Lord. And he's not disappointed with us at all. He knew before he created us exactly what that movie would look like. And he created us anyway. You know why? Because he's amazing. So this chapter is addressing the people who have set themselves up as these examples that everybody ought to follow, these examples of excellence, who look down their noses at people who are blatant in, their, in the immorality, sinning area. But God says this, unbelievers, whether immoral or moral, all make a life choice to keep on practicing sin without regard for the coming judgment or they decide to have a relationship with Christ and have all that wiped out. And even the religious hide in, the deli in a delusion, and that delusion provides them with no security whatsoever. What is God's message to hypocrites who are sinners? What is God's message to the hypocritical unbelievers? God is true, you are not. You are guilty. Your works always out you as hypocrites. And this applies, as the Southerners would say, to all y'all. Amen? Amen. <laughs> the immoral and the moral, God judges all. Yet God gives all, whosoever, a chance to be cleansed by his blood. And the simple question is, will you accept the gift, O hypocrite? So all our hypocritical friends, what we hypocrites need to do is talk to our hypocritical friends and offer them the Christ. Well, the closing moments of this lesson could be the ten most important minutes of your life. You'll be introduced to the good news concerning how you can spend all eternity in heaven when you close your eyes in this life. We want you to know that God wants you. 
And what he wants from you is that you make the most important decision of your life. Well, there's a person who is Christianity, Jesus Christ, the most important being in the universe, the sovereign God, the preeminent God, the one and only God. He created you, he loves you unconditionally, and he wants a relationship with you. And that is good news for you. The bad news is that you were born with a problem. From the moment of your physical birth, God considered you a sinner. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says this, It is written, There is no creature who is righteous, not even one. Romans 3, 23 says, All creatures have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These verses are, are a formal accusation from God about you, an indictment. It is not your fault that you are a sinner from physical birth, but it is your circumstance. Unfortunately, being a sinner has a penalty. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the payment earned for being a sinner is both spiritual death and physical death. That's what uh, was said to Adam and Eve in the garden. Dying, die. Dying spiritually, when you eat from that tree, you will also die physically. Well, you were born with Adam's first sin credited to you and to all members of the human race. And in addition, you commit your own set of personal sins. God requires perfection for you to get into heaven. Those who sin don't meet God's perfect standards. And trying to make up for your sins by being a good person or by trying to work your way into heaven with imperfect deeds doesn't impress God at all. This gospel message is the good news concerning what the Lord did to fix the bad news for sinners. Jesus Christ paid a price with his blood on the cross so that sinners can be saved. His blood is the only thing that changes, wipes out sin. And responding to his gospel message is the chance to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's what the Lord said to a self-righteous Pharisee, Nicodemus, who eventually became a believer in Christ in John chapter 3, verse 3. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, Unless you are born again, the spiritual birth, you cannot see the kingdom of God the Father in heaven. And Nicodemus had been studying the Old Testament scriptures for 20 years. And this was like a punch in his gut. And he couldn't even breathe. And if you go on in that passage, the Lord says, Hey man, don't be amazed at what I said to you. You're a teacher of the law. You should know this. Fortunately for you, God the Father wants you in heaven. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God the Father demonstrates his own unconditional love toward all mankind, and that while we were yet sinners, while we were unrighteous, ungodly, unbelievers, and by the way, those terms do not ever apply to a believer in Christ. We are not unrighteous, we are not ungodly, and of course, we are not unbelievers. But while we were God the Father's enemy, what did he do? He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die a sacrificial death for us. Who is this God that saves you? The Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He says, I, Paul, deliver to you as of primary importance the gospel message I also received from God 
that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to the Old Testament scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Old Testament scriptures. Absolute righteousness is the admission ticket to heaven. It is the key to eternal life, the resurrection life, and it is yours free of charge. Right now, right where you sit, if you want it, you can have eternal life. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 11 say this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, confessing that he is deity, that he is God, and if you believe in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 10. For with with the heart a person believes, resulting in the imputation of absolute righteousness, which is your admission ticket to heaven, and with the mouth a person confesses, choosing faith in Christ alone, resulting in salvation. Romans 10.11, for Scripture says, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not be disappointed. So accept the invitation and heed the warning. Of John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has the resurrection life right at that moment. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the resurrection life. Instead, the wrath of God, the lake of fire, abides on him. There is a hell, a very real place. And it's described this way in the Bible, Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 to 42. The Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, will send forth his elect angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks. That's a reference to unbelievers. And those who commit lawlessness, that's a reference to unbelievers. Matthew 13, 42. And the elect angels, the believer angels, will throw unbelievers into the furnace of fire, the lake of fire. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For those without a relationship with Christ, he'll just ask them to step to the left and to take the elevator. Just press down. Believers, <laughs> believers in Christ have a different fate. Matthew chapter 13, verse 43 says this, Then the righteous, that's a reference to believers in Christ, will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. So getting to heaven is easy. Acts chapter 16, verse 31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved by God, you and everyone in your household who also believes. The Apostle John says the word believe 98 times in his epistle. What does it mean to believe? It just means to take God's word for it, for what it takes to be saved. Sinners need a Savior. The Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him, and you will be saved. Well, let's close with music. As believers in Christ, when we're subjected to the judging of the legalistic, self-righteous crowd, sometimes we believe them, and sometimes it gets us a little depressed and a little down on ourselves. June Murphy reminds us in her song, I Am Beautiful, to see ourselves as God sees us.
song. Beautiful. June Murphy is beautiful. Happy birthday coming up this week, June. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you for opening our eyes to the truth of how awful we are in judging others while simultaneously forgetting our own flaws. As we go into the week, help us to conduct moment-by-moment self-evaluation that shocks us so much that it keeps us from judging others. We ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. So uh, make it a habit to listen to the announcements. They're posted separately. Keep current on the things going on in Barah Ministries. Right after this lesson, uh, five minutes after this lesson, we'll be discussing the lesson, and we'll have prayer circle. So you can join us live or on Zoom immediately afterward. If you have any biblical questions, ask the pastor, pastor at barahministries.com. Keep on studying the Word of God daily. Thanks for coming, thanks for watching, and thanks for listening.